Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. In this conversation, we're going to be talking about the letter to the Galatians. Now, I'm just trying to work this out. We had a letter to the Romans in Rome, a letter to the Corinthians (laughs) in Corinth, a letter to the Galatians, but there's no city of Galatia, is there? (laughs) No, that's right. This is a region that we're not 100% sure where. We know it was in what we would call modern Turkey, and Some scholars think it's referring to an area of northern Turkey, but I think most these days accept it was uh, an area in southern Turkey because there was a Roman province called Galatia. So it's almost certainly that one that Paul is talking about. And he's writing to Christians in that area, to churches that he established during his first missionary journey between 46 to 48 AD. And the letter begins by him simply saying, Paul, an apostle, to the churches in Galatia. So unlike some of the churches that are specific to one particular church, like to the church in Philippi, this seems to have been what we call a circular letter that Paul intended would be passed around those churches in Galatia that he himself had founded some few years earlier. So he had a vested interest in their success and was therefore wanting to help them do well. Absolutely. And the trouble is at the moment they were in danger of not doing well because what had happened was when Paul had moved on from his church establishing, church planting mission there, His footsteps had been dogged by a group of people that scholars call the Judaizers. And by that, we mean people who were Christians, but they were Jewish Christians. So they were Jewish converts to Jesus. But they were absolutely adamant that to be a Christian, you had to become a Jew as well. So, of course, that meant for the men, circumcision and for everyone obedience to the law of Moses. And so wherever Paul went preaching his message, as soon as he'd gone, these people would move in and say, oh, I see you've just had Paul visiting you recently. Good guy, that Paul, isn't he? But did he mention about the law and circumcision? No, no, he didn't tell us that. Of course he wouldn't because he was preaching to Gentiles, to non-Jews. Ah, you see, the reason is... You know, he he doesn't quite preach the full gospel. In fact, it seems pretty clear that what they are suggesting in this letter is that really he wasn't preaching the true message because he wasn't a true apostle like Peter and John. Peter and John, of course, had accompanied Jesus. They'd been one of the 12. They'd been with him. Paul, they said, got his message secondhand. And so he's got it slightly wrong and he's missed out on this important stuff of the need to be circumcised, the need to become a good Jew, to be a good Christian and the need to keep the law. And that outraged Paul. I was going to say, what was his response to that? (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't very happy at all. In fact, this is one of the most plain speaking letters of all 
Paul's letters. If, if you want to get the raw edge of Paul, Galatians is the letter because he lets them have both barrels, as we often put it. He starts his letter having done, Paul, to the churches here, grace from God, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Wow. So what a way to start a letter. I am astonished that you've turned away from the gospel to what he calls it's it's a different gospel. It is not a gospel. It is not good news. All you are doing is taking people back into the old Judaism. This is not the gospel of grace. In chapter three, he opens uh, that section by saying, you foolish Galatians. Well, that's a way to win over friends, isn't it? But again, the passion that he feels here about this issue, that the gospel is in danger of being undermined. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. So I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by observing the law? like these false teachers are saying, or by believing what you heard through faith. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human efforts? So I would say, yeah, he's, he's pretty riled up about this, but he's riled up not because of him. It's not because, like, oh, you want to believe them rather me, he sees this as a profound undermining of the gospel of Jesus, that we are put right with God through nothing else but our faith in him and his sacrifice for us at the cross, about which he writes in great length, as we saw in a previous episode when we looked at Romans. This is the heart of the gospel. This is how people get right with God by putting their faith in Jesus who died on the cross to pay the price of their sins and by now walking life with him, not by obeying the old Jewish law. So he's sort of underlining, in a sense, what really, really matters. Yes, he takes them back to Jesus. And in chapter 2, he he says, you know, if, if you're really thinking that my message is somehow different uh, let me tell you that when I went to Jerusalem to share my message with the apostles so that they could know that the encounter I had had with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus was a genuine encounter and the message I carry is their message. He says that those apostles who were there, James, Peter, John, those who were reputed to be pillars in the church, he calls them, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. It's a way of saying, let's shake on it. We agree. When they recognize the grace given to me and they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they would go to the Jews. So this was very much a, a warning shot across the bows, expressed very strongly to not distinguish between each other. Yeah, and more than a warning shot. And this was a nuclear missile across their bows because he is seeing this not just as a sort of little incidental that's really unimportant. He sees it as fundamentally undermining 
the gospel. And so he goes on in chapter three to talk about how has God always put people right with himself? He's put them right with himself through faith. He goes back to Abraham, the founder of this whole story. He said, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So it's always been about faith. And then he'll go on uh, in chapter three to talk about how God gave the law after faith. Law was a way of expressing faith for that season in Israel's history, not instead of faith. It's always been about faith in Jesus. And this way of approaching God through Jesus is God's only way for everyone, for Jew and Gentile. It's not that Jews can continue to approach God through their sacrificial system and the law. No, That's being fulfilled and abolished. It's faith in Jesus. For Gentiles, it's faith in Jesus. For men, it's faith in Jesus. For women, it's faith in Jesus. For slave, it's faith in Jesus. What he's doing there is taking all the major categories of life and culture in the ancient world. And he sums it up in these words at the end of chapter 3. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You're children of Abraham, the one to whom God made this promise that he would build a family of faith that would one day fill the whole world. You become part of that family. Whoever you are, whatever your status in life, whatever your ethnic background or religion, there is only one way, and it's that one way of faith in Jesus. And when you come to God through him, All those divisions and distinctions between people are really quite meaningless, Paul says. So this message of equality has reverberated down through the centuries. Yes, absolutely. And Christians have often been at the forefront of valuing every single human life. They've been at the forefront of seeking to abolish the transatlantic slave trade. It was Christians who brought that about through their persistent doggedness because they saw in scripture that this was an ungodly and unrighteous thing. It's Christians still today, among others, of course, who are very involved in the modern slave trade in seeking to abolish that. It's Christians who give great value to the life of the unborn child in a mother's womb. There is huge conviction that every life has value before God. And that in Jesus, we all come to him equally. The Bible originally says as sons. These days, of course, we probably say as sons and daughters. But the whole point of it saying we can come as sons was that in the culture of the time, the sons were the ones who would carry on from the father. They carried on the father's business. They were the ones who would get the bulk of the inheritance and so on. So it's a way of saying men and women together, you are, quotes, 
sons of God now through Jesus. You are made part of his family. And there is no grade one, grade two, grade three, insiders and outsiders. We all come on the same basis and we all stand on the same footing through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is a massive topic because it's not as if, in some senses, things have changed that much, I suppose, from Paul's day. The divisions between people and the categories that we uh, use to describe others. The world's full of it. I mean... One of the most obvious ones in our modern world, the divisions between uh, people of uh, black background and other ethnic backgrounds and white being huge controversies, problems, conflicts about that. But, you know, this goes right to the heart of it. And, you know, we could put it in our language. It doesn't matter what the colour of your skin. You come equally before God as a son or a daughter of the living God through faith in Jesus. And once you are through that door, you are in the same room. You are part of the same family. Of course, it's not just black and white. It it can also be male-female issues. It can even be subcultural issues. In our own church, we have people who come from a Romany background uh, who had to leave their own home country of Romania because they were persecuted for being ethnic Romanis, driven out, and they came here as exiles. I mean, you think that's terrible. In Within Europe itself, still these divisions happen today. And so we are delighted that in our church we have got people of, of African background and Asian and Southeast Asian and European and Romani And it's a delight, and that's exactly what the church should be. One family made up of people of every tribe and tongue and language and nation, as it will be summed up in the book of Revelation, who all come on the same basis. And even when there are still divisions out there in the world, church should be the one place where those divisions are broken down. And if they aren't, then we need to look at what is it in us that is still keeping some of those divisions there. And we need to read this letter because Paul is ruthless in the way that he says such divisions are ungodly and they are frankly a different gospel and you are not a true follower of Jesus if you're permitting any of those divisions to find place in your heart or your church community. What practical advice does Paul say how this can be achieved, this uh, equality and and living in in the way that the gospel is summed up? What he is careful to do in this letter is not to say it is about replacing one old set of rules, which is what Judaism had become, with a different set of Christian rules. In fact, he's very clear in chapter 5 that... Walking the Jesus way is all about coming into freedom. Chapter five begins with the words, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Uh, So don't allow yourselves to be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, he's thinking there of that burden that these false preachers were trying to put in place and do this, obey the law, be circumcised. But he goes on to say, That's not the way that God wants us to live. What he wants us to do, rather, 
He says in chapter 5, verse 16, is to live by the Spirit. Rather than living by looking up rules and seeing what do I do about this, we look in our hearts that are shaped and formed by Scripture and by what God has revealed to us, and we say, Holy Spirit, how do I live in this context? So there's this great passage at the end of chapter 5 where Paul says, you know, if you will live by the Spirit, you'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. If you let the Spirit lead you rather than your earthly nature lead you, then you will walk into the right thing. Because these two things are really quite opposed, he says, and, and then he lists some of them. And these are examples, I'm sure it's not everything, but he says, you know, the acts of the sinful nature, the acts of the flesh, as it's called in some translations, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So there's the, this is not a complete list. These are all the sort of things that we get into when we let our selfish desires take control. And actually, he's quite strong at this point. He says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he does this fantastic contrast. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You don't need a law. If you will let these fruit grow within you, and that happens the more you let the Holy Spirit guide you, the more you ask for his help, the more these things will grow. And so there's an appeal here not to live out of obedience to the old Jewish law. That won't get you anywhere, but rather to put your faith and trust in Jesus, to receive his Holy Spirit, and then to let that Spirit, as you follow his leadings, to grow these beautiful fruit within you, which reflects the character of Jesus. As you went through those two lists, I was struck by the first list seemed to be full of death. And the second list, with its reference to fruit, seemed to be full of life. Yeah, that's a really good way to sum it up, David, isn't it? The funny thing is, you know, if we are tempted into the first things, it doesn't seem like death at the time. Ask anyone who has just one more drink and just one more drink. It seems like great at the time, but then ask that person the next morning when they've got the hangover and they see the fruit of it. That's just a little picture. But, you know, these things do lead, as you rightly say, that they're all about death and the other's about life. It's about growing stuff. The interesting thing is, you know, all this fruit as well is not just for us. Fruit you give away, don't you? And all of these, interestingly as well, have to do with people, for all of these things, you need someone else, as it were, you know, at least for most of them, to love. You, you need someone to love. To be patient, you have to have someone or something to be patient with. And about to be kind, there's got to be someone there to 
express that kindness to and, and so on. This is what I love about Paul. He's not an ivory tower theologian, you know, locked away somewhere writing commentaries and, and books on life. He was a pastor at heart. Actually, he was a missionary church planting evangelist and a pastor. So he loved people. He was concerned for people. And and all these qualities are, are his passion for these things to grow in people so that it will affect other people. These are all very outward looking, as you put it, they're, they're life-giving things rather than death things. And that's what happens when we follow the Holy Spirit rather than a list of do's and don'ts. Paul is talking about the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a phrase which perhaps some people have heard, some people may not have heard. It's worth just sort of thinking through a little bit more what, what he's really wanting to convey. Yeah. Uh, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that's the point, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, just just think, first of all, fruit. Um, he's obviously using a, a picture here. What does fruit do? Fruit grows. Fruit develops. What does fruit need to grow? It needs to be attached to a tree. What does a tree need? It, it needs life. It needs to draw its sustenance out of the soil, out of the rain that falls on it. So I think what he's seeing here is this, this is not sort of some magical thing. Oh, all these things pop out of me. But it's rather as just like a tree has to put its roots deep into the ground, into the right things. It has to have its sustenance from the soil and from the rain. So we as Christians need to put our roots into the right things and into the right people, put our roots into Christian fellowship, sharing with others, put our roots into the word of God to knowing it and wanting it to live it out. And as we feed on these things and as we draw from these things, fruit is something that naturally appears. I mean, a, a pear tree doesn't sit there thinking, mm, really must produce some pears today. It just exists as a pear tree and pears grow. And I, I think that's what Paul's after here he is contrasting the sort of legalistic approach to faith of the Judaizers with this, if we will only get our roots into Jesus and into the good stuff, these are the sort of things that will naturally grow as we follow him. In fact, he changes the picture slightly at the end of chapter 5 where he's still talking about this. He says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. And there's a picture there now of, if you like, soldiers marching and keeping in, keep in step, keep in beat with the one that you are following. And as you do that, these are the things that will increasingly start to grow in you. They're not just going to pop in there overnight. You know, if, if you've been a very impatient person and you come to Jesus, patience is not going to drop out of heaven next Tuesday. But these are things that will grow within you increasingly as you put your roots into Jesus, as you draw life from him, as you ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill you and make you too more holy. As you keep in step with Jesus, these are the things that will grow. But going the other way, the other route of these Judaizers, frankly, that will just lead to death stuff, not life. In my mind, I've got this picture of these sort of groups of believers around Galatia in different places that Paul knows. 
a little bit like you know business startups. And he's moved on, and and they're under sort of new management, if you like, now. And and these incomers have have, have not got it. They've they've wanted to go back to the old ways. I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on how that fruit of the spirit, if you cycle it back into into these groups of people, how how that's going to change their relationship with each other, you know, the divisions that he's highlighted and and just being Christians together. Yeah, absolutely, which is really where he takes his letter by the end, where he talks about how these things will work out with one another. I mean, the first one looks a bit strange as you open chapter six. It says, if someone's caught in a sin, you know, you as spiritual should restore him gently. So you're know, challenging one another about sin here, but notice doing it gently. It's just not my saying, David, you've done this. Uh, now stop that. This is getting alongside a brother or sister and saying, hey, man, you know, and looking to restore them gently. Uh, but he says, hey, hey, but also watch yourself lest you are tempted. And then this beautiful, powerful verse in chapter six, verse two, carry each other's burdens. And so you will fulfill the law of Christ. So here's this sense of, we're in this together. We're not left on our own. We, we're here. Yeah, there are some things we, you know, we, we have to go through in life. We have to carry it, but we are here to help share in one another's burdens. So there's this great sense here of him wanting them to share in this life together, not to be on their own. And a verse that I've always found both powerful and, and challenging in this context in chapter six, verse seven, where he says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And you know, that is still true uh, today. I mean, it's just a farming image he's gone to here, isn't it? That, you know, if we sow a certain thing, that's what we're going to reap. If we, if we sow bitterness and annoyance, don't expect to grow a fruit of patience and kindness with people. So there's a call here in this context of doing it together to help one another to, to sow the right things and also a challenge that God isn't mocked, you know, that we might be able to fool some people sometimes with presenting certain behavior in public, but we're really quite different when we're on our own. No, what we sow ends up coming out. You can't cover things up from God. But but let, let, let's not be that sort of person, Paul goes on to say. Let's not be weary in well-doing, because if we sow the right things in due season, we will reap a good harvest together. And as you quoted Paul there several times, and the word help jumped out at me, you know, this is to help each other, not to hinder each other. That seems to be Paul's heart. Yeah, and the trouble is, of course, what lay behind this letter was a bunch of people who were doing anything but that. They were hindering. Now, I honestly believe they meant well. They they honestly thought this. It, you know, it wasn't something they were just pulling out of a hat. They believed with all their heart, and yet they got it wrong. They got something fundamentally wrong about the gospel. So they were hindering by putting burdens on people that... Paul will say elsewhere that, you know, our forefathers, our ancestors couldn't even do. So why are you trying to dump this on someone else? So they were hindering. And what Paul is doing as a pastor who loves these people, he's, 
He is wanting to help them by getting them back to seeing that being a Christian is not about law keeping. It's certainly not about going back to the old Judaism. It is about faith in Jesus alone and in what he did for us on the cross. It is about living a life in the Holy Spirit. It is about walking and helping one another because we can't do this on our own. So, so it is a letter very much about how God has come to help us in Jesus, how we are called to help one another, how the Spirit comes to help us and hindering like these Judaizers were doing was really just leading to a completely different gospel. And I heard you mention in a previous episode that there are some evidence of Paul actually signing these letters. Because, again, maybe it's worth just clarifying that he didn't actually write them himself. Yes. Um, I mean, the common way of uh, writing letters in these days was you, ha- you had a scribe and a manuensis, to use a posh term, someone who wrote down what you were saying. And sometimes that would be by literal dictation. Sometimes it would be, David, just tell them next that it was through faith in Jesus that this happened. And and you would turn that, depending on your own ability with language. Now, Paul clearly was very gifted with, with words. But he would dictate these letters and he had people write them for him. I often imagine him pacing up and down, particularly those letters that he wrote while he was in jail, pacing backwards and forwards. And remember, too, these letters would not have all been written all at one go. Sometimes they would have been written over a period of several days or even several weeks, some of the longer ones, which sometimes expresses why there's a sudden jump, an apparent jump in thinking. But what he wanted to do with this letter to really bring home that it was him, their founding apostle, who had sent this. It wasn't just someone pretending to be Paul and writing this, because all then the Judaizers would have done would have said, well, yes, someone set this up, you see, haven't they, to try and undermine the true gospel we're bringing to you. And so he ends up by saying, see what large letters I use to write this with my own hand. So someone has been his scribe and written as he's dictated the letter, But at the end, he's then done the last few sentences himself in his own hands so that people can say, oh, yeah, that is Paul's handwriting, isn't it? I mentioned in a previous episode, see what large letters some scholars think maybe there was some eyesight problem. Maybe that was his thorn in the flesh, maybe some kind of glaucoma or something. And he had to write in big letters to be able to see it. So he sort of does this final little note himself in his own handwriting. But even at the end, there's still a a, a punch to it because he says, finally, let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He's thinking of the trouble that these Judaizers had been causing him. Uh, And then ends, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Does strike me as being one of his rather more abrupt endings to his letters, but I think it reflects the passion and angst in this founding apostle for these people who he feared were being misled into a completely different gospel because that's how important the gospel of Jesus was to him. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. 
Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.